When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. If you don't live in Illinois, you may not have heard of Ann Burke. She's a justice on the Illinois Supreme Court. She also was the spark behind the founding of the Special Olympics 50 years ago and has been a tireless advocate for vulnerable people, and particularly vulnerable children, uh, all her life. I sat down with Ann in Chicago last week uh, to talk about that journey and her continued battle on behalf uh, of people who need an advocate. Justice Ann Burke, my old friend, it's great to see you. Nice being here, David. Uh, We, um, there's so much to talk about, especially we sit here the week after the 50th anniversary of the Special Olympics, which is a monumental occasion, Mm -hmm. particularly if as you, as I am, you're the parent of a special Olympian, mm-hmm. so uh, I want to uh, talk uh, about that. But first, I want uh, to talk a little bit about your own journey before uh, that. Before uh, Special Olympics. You grew up on the southwest side of Chicago. I did. I grew up actually at 47th and Ingleside in Woodlawn until I was about 10. I have three older siblings. One, The next one to me um, is nine years older, and the, the oldest one is 15 years older, and I only have one sibling left. Um, I lived on the uh, second floor of an apartment building. In fact, I never lived in a house until after I was married. I always lived in an apartment. My dad was a bartender. Uh, actually, he had a, um, a speakeasy at 47th and Lake Park during Prohibition, and serve liquor and coffee cups, from what I hear. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, my mom was a homeworker. And so we did move further west to what Southside Irish Catholics do. We went from St. Ambrose Parish on 47th Street to St. Rita Parish on 63rd Street. And so I went to St. finished out St. Rita Grammar School at 63rd in Washtenaw and, and then went to Maria High School at 67th. I should ask, when did the McLones come over from Ireland? My dad um, is the youngest of 13. Oh, my. So a lot of history has been lost, and and he didn't know much because he was the youngest, and his siblings were pretty much all gone. And he was the last one home at 34th and Union. But I have been doing some research lately. And so we know um, the McLones came in in the early 1850s came over, but we don't know from where. And I've searched and searched, and I finally found somebody. In fact, our Irish Council General, Brian O'Brien now, um, is from the north. That's a, that is a Irish name. Right? Yes, uh-huh. yes. I don't know why they needed both Brian's, but they did. <laughs> uh, but he's a young fella and a very competent man. But he told me that there were McGlones in the north. 
And he actually knew a McClone because I have not been able to find any McClones in the South. So at least I have a starting point. Mm-hmm. But where they left from, what county, I'm not sure. And right to Chicago? No, they went to New York. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of immigrants, they went right to New York on Mulberry Street, Mott Street, mm-hmm. um, and to a parish there, Transfiguration Parish. I know that. I know the um, address of the apartments. I know my grandparents actually got married there, Sarah Rice, and my grandfather, um, James McClone, and I visited Transfiguration Parish. But now it's Chinese. As many neighborhoods, it transforms once the certain class and population of immigrants from one country, another one moves in. So it's a Chinese church now. But I I have a lot of records, and I just have to spend a little more time working with someone to help me find where in Ireland Mm -hmm. uh, we came from. uh, You've worked with uh, uh, children with disabilities all your life but you had your own struggles as a uh, as a young person I did but I didn't know I had any struggles I was like an only child because the next one to me you know was was much much older older, so um, I I only was a C student in school but I was really kind of a happy child at most all the time because I did a lot of things. I grew up in the parks in Chicago, Chicago Park District. I hung out there, played beanbags, and excelled in some sports, and did a lot of art. I really was creative. My mom taught me to sew, so I made all my own clothes at one time, even made my own wedding dress. Uh, So I, I gravitated towards the arts, let's just say that. So I felt fulfilled, and my mom and dad never said, you have to do better in school. I passed. By the time I got to Maria High School... it was a struggle. It was. I mean, I didn't realize there was a struggle. I mean, I read everything um, twice. Um, I struggled to write because I would start with from the right to the left. I didn't really know what that meant, but the nuns told me, no, you got to start from with the ruler left to right. But then I learned to do that. I was... I, I, so I was trained to go from left to right, and for reading the same thing, I would start right to left and get all jumbled up and focusing on the page. But I didn't think anything was odd about that since I didn't know anybody how anybody else saw things. I just thought I was just like everybody else. But I had a lot of friends who did really well in school, and I just felt I was somebody who didn't really do well, but I did okay in, in the arts and in sports. But by the time I got to high school... Um, I still was a C student, but a particular woman, a nun, Sister Henrietta, uh, kind of took me under her wing. And she helped me with reading, and she helped me uh, with uh, what I would call now executive functioning, how to organize myself and do things. And, And she finally asked me when I was a sophomore, what are you going to do when you graduate from high school? I really didn't know, um, and nor did my parents ever talk about it. My dad or my mom never went to high school. And my older siblings, my brothers went into the service, and my sister went to uh, Chicago Teachers College for a year. Then she did contometer work and worked in a drugstore. But I never even thought about it until she mentioned it. And she asked me, what do you really love to do? And I told her, I said, I like to twirl my baton, tap dance, swim, art and she said you should be a gym teacher and so she helped me focus on that and she helped me with studying a little bit I never really got more than 
you know, a C plus or maybe, you know, a low B uh, once in a while in high school. But the park district offered scholarships to kids who were in the parks to go to college to be gym teachers. So I took that test. That wasn't written, which was a good thing. <laughs> it was an oral test. Uh-huh. And they knew me anyway. And so I, I received a $500 scholarship to go to George Williams College, which was in Hyde in, Park. In Chicago, yeah. 53rd and Drexel. Yeah. And I went there in 1962-63. But it moved. It did. After my first year, it moved. 1963 to Downers Grove. So I dropped out of dropped out of school, but I was really kind of happy about it because I knew the next year I was going to have to take kinesiology, which was science. And I really couldn't do math because for the I, same reason. For the same reasons, and I was always transposing numbers, so I never in grammar school knew that I was um, that I was doing that. I and that's but I, so I got my math wrong all the time. But I basically got through it. But it was at George Williams that I found out that there was something wrong with me. It was kind of interesting. I was in a um, a class, and Arthur Steinhaus was the professor, and he was doing some research. He wanted to know. If I could, if his, he had six people volunteer for this, um, whether you could perform basketball free throws better under hypnosis and not, or not being under hypnosis. So I volunteered, why not? And um, under hypnosis, I actually did much better. Uh, I got more Shooting free throws. Shooting free throws. Free throws. Well, I have some professional players I would like you to speak to about this. Oh, absolutely. This. We put them under hypnosis. <laughs> But, it, but the exercise was a revelation to me because while we were under hypnosis, the professor had the six of us go up to the chalkboard and write our name at age 18, because most of us were 18 and 19 by then, and your age, and go all the way down every two years to write your name and your age, your name, age, name, age. And I wrote my name and my age at age five. That was the last one. When he when we were awakened out of hypnosis, my name was backwards and my numbers were backwards. Wow. And that's the first time, you know, it kind of hit me because it's been a long time from being a fresh, freshman in college since the nuns told me not to go that, to write that mm-hmm. way, that it, I recalled that that's how I always write. Or, and uh, he said, you have a perceptual handicap and then just went on with the class. <laughs> I had no idea what that meant. He said, but your free throws are good. Good, yes, yeah. yeah. So you can go on with life, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's the first time I ever had any inkling. Uh-huh. And um, you, uh, in within the Park District, uh, you, you kind of gravitated to helping uh, young people with disabilities. Talk about how that role evolved. Yeah, the, the Park District had no program for children with um, learning differences at all. When I was... Well, when I dropped out of college, when school moved, I was hired as a full-time physical education teacher for the parks. I was at a number of different parks, and I just taught regular kids in the park, all kinds of things. And um, the Kennedy Foundation, Mrs. Shriver, knew President McFetridge. She and Sarge President lived here. President of the, 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 the park, park district. district, yes. And she asked him if uh, he would consider having a program for children and adults with learning differences in the Park District. This is 1965. She attached a $10,000 grant 
to that request. And he said, well, why not? Um, sure. So he told, so McFetridge asked Tom Barry, who was the general superintendent of the Park District, get some of the teachers in phys ed, who are phys ed teachers, to volunteer, and we'll start the program. And so I volunteered, and we started the program at West Pullman Park. But the difficulty, of course, was I didn't know anything about kids with learning disabilities. None of us did. There was no special education, no special recreation, no ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. I didn't even ever see a person with intellectual differences in my whole life because in 65, they were either in institutions or in the back room. So parents never brought their kids out. I mean, there was no occasion for me to see them. It was very kind of a strange thing, but I said, well, how hard could it be? You know, I teach kids at all different levels, everything. So let let me ask you, um, this was after you'd had that experience with the hypnosis. Yes, yes. Did that make you identify more with uh, people who had learning differences? I think it it must have, subconsciously. It it never occurred to me uh, because I really didn't really think perceptual handicap was a disability in my mind. Because I'm fine, I got through life. I had one year of college, and I didn't think anything about it. And my parents—I don't even think I ever told my parents about what he said to me. So I didn't have that mindset. That, but I think subconsciously they were struggling, and absolutely I identified with trying to help. But I—I I just treated all my students like any any other student. There was no no difference. It wasn't about academics. They behaved and responded differently. And that was the challenge because some of them didn't, they were nonverbal. Some of them had other kinds of physical disabilities, but I worked around it. I just adjusted my teaching to them. And it was really fun. I mean, it was just a challenge for me. I I didn't think, and they enjoyed it and they learned. We learned differently. And you, you were brought up, um, in a, in the, Catholic community, very, very central to your life. Did that have anything to do with how you received these young people? I believe it probably did because any religion that you are brought up in, it becomes part of you. It's part of your fabric, so it's kind of there. And I did do some volunteer work, and I knew my mom did um, at the church, and I went with her and my brothers and sister, um, absolutely. So it was just part of what we and do. And this notion of sort of all, all of God's children being equal? Yes, uh, absolutely. So um, this program grew. I mean, you grew this program. We did. We ended, I start, but first of all, I had to advertise in the Roseland newspapers, the local newspapers, as did the other nine physical education teachers in, their, in the other parks, to tell parents, please bring your child to uh, the park district. Please bring your, our child. Mm-hmm. And that word, um, which we don't use anymore, was in the newspaper and headlines. I still have those copies of those papers. And one, one family did. Uh, Marty O'Brien brought Kevin uh, and uh, his wife, and Kevin being a Down syndrome, and brought him to the park because they lived really across the street. They had siblings, and Marty told 
John and Esther Cusack to bring Michael, and that's how it worked. Mm -hmm. And so finally parents realized that it was okay to bring their child to the park. They were very concerned for the because they thought it might be rejected or made bullied yeah. and other kids, but it didn't happen that way. Because it was their neighborhood, they go to the park, and the other kids in the neighborhood uh, knew the O'Briens, and here was Kevin now out there, and they helped me with my program. I could not have done it without the neighborhood children helping. And you did an interesting thing to help that process along. You recruited uh, other kids as your assistant oh, yes. counselors to help uh, with with all of this. And so there was this commingling from the beginning of uh, these, these kids who had challenges and, and kids who did not. Absolutely. We had inclusion from the very beginning, not even knowing what it meant, but I couldn't have had the program. The kids loved being playing with the other kids, and the other kids really taught the special children, really. It was but that's what kids do. They play together. They teach, teach each other. And um, now today, of course, uh, in, in fast forward to today, is that and it's, it's a uh, revolution of inclusion. But now it's authorized teams competing against each other. Mm -hmm. Then it, it wasn't something that we were conscious of, except that we needed help. And who else but the kids who were in the regular day camp programs and in the park that came every day. In addition to the carpenters and the plumbers, the natatorium instructors of the park themselves. Now, these were older individuals who also hadn't met a person with intellectual differences, who also participated and helped me. You know, especially the boys, bringing him to the swimming pool, help change with them. It was a whole family of people who wrapped their arms around and nurtured the kids. You're, you're in your early 20s when this is happening. You, yes. you finally get, they ask you to come downtown and start coordinating all of these uh, programs. And you have this idea. And this idea is to have a big competition at Soldier Field. Yes. It uh, was something we always did. My children knew how to run, even if it was, you know, a short period, you know, a 50, you know, 50 yard dash, a relay jump, even if it was only two feet, they learned jumping from two inches to two feet, and that was major. And the park district officials said, how do we get more people from the Chicago area to come to our park? Never did anybody know, or there were no statistics, because people weren't wasn't, weren't doing that kind of research. How many children were like this in Chicago? We had no idea. But the regular park program had what they called a end-of-day camp citywide jamboree, where kids came to Soldier Field, did the relay races and, and small competition, high jump and whatever. And I said, we should just do the same thing with our 10 parks. And that was what they said to do. And I, I absolutely was doing that anyway. We were all doing that anyway, so it was no big deal. The Park District employees are professionals. Most of them were and are athletes. So I had the whole Park District who could execute this idea. It wasn't something that I was really daunted by. But when I did write the proposal to Eunice Kennedy Shriver, because Dr. Freeberg uh, from Southern Illinois University, who I called, who knew about these people, who had been ex former executive director of the Kennedy Foundation, 
suggested I write to her because she might be interested. I sub- I sent the proposal, the simple 50-yard dash, you know, mm-hmm. high jump and free throw, and invited me out to uh, Washington to meet with her. Yeah, that must have been kind of, you said you weren't daunted by the task. How about the notion of flying off to Washington to meet with you. Oh my goodness. I had only been on an airplane once before. (laughs) Only once before was I on an airplane in my whole life. I went to Florida with a girlfriend once. And so that in itself was kind of scary. But to meet President Kennedy's sister and, you know, who I admired, that whole family, and Mm -hmm. everyone wanted to dress just like Jackie and, and all. And so it was just, that was. That was really what I was worried about. I had no worries about my proposal. That's what I did. I mean, that's what I knew best. But when she read the proposal, she said it was good. But she said it was unacceptable. That pretty put me under the table. And I, what do you do about that? Because that's what I think we should be doing in Chicago is having this jamboree. And uh, she said it's, but she didn't finish her sentence, which, thank goodness, because then it, I got off the floor from being, you know, flabbergasted about what she said. She said, it's unacceptable because it can always be better. It's not big enough. And uh, it has to be national, not just city. You go back to Chicago, rewrite it, and I will help you. And uh, and you did. I did. We had the first Special Olympics um, six well, months later. Before you, we get to the event itself, there's one great story that speaks to Chicago uh, about uh, the challenge, one of the challenges you face, which is you got a letter from Avery Brundage, yes. who is uh, the head of the uh, International in- Olympic Committee, parenthetically, kind of a malevolent character, anti-Semitic, racist. All of the above. Yeah, right. But uh, uh, he wrote you a letter th- essentially threatening legal action because you had usurped, in his view, the use of the name Olympics. I was devastated that he said it was a cease and desist letter. Um, I was 23 years old, a college dropout. I had no idea what that meant. What does that mean? Cease and desist. And I gave it to President McFetridge. McFetridge um, gave it to Mayor Daly. Mayor Daly summoned me to his office. That was another event for me. It's like <laughs> probably more important than seeing Mrs. Shriver for, in, in, because this was home. And my dad, you know, just so excited that I was going to meet Mayor Daly, the whole nine yards. I don't think people outside Chicago probably appreciate the place that Richard J. Daly held in Chicago in the pantheon of Chicago leaders and no. and communities. I mean, he and he was he was the boss. He, he was the man. He was, and he he was benevolent. I mean, he really was in in so many ways. And so when I was summoned to his office, um, he said, uh, "This is this is a, a very bad thing that happened here." So he said, "I'm going to call Avery." So he picked up the phone. I'm in the room, <laughs> and he said, "Avery, this is Dick." Now. I didn't know at the time that the LaSalle Hotel, which was across the street, was owned by Avery Brundage. And I didn't know what the LaSalle Hotel was. Being a Southsider, I never went went north of 
Van Buren, I think, at the time. <laughs> but um, there I am in the mayor's office, and he picks up the phone, and I'm listening to him, and he said, Avery, I hear you're not going to let these handicapped kids use the word Olympics in their games. And then I don't know what's going on on the other line, but then I hear Mayor Daly say, well, the fire department has been over to your hotel, <laughs> and they have found many, many fire code violations. Now today, uh, Special Olympics is the only athletic organization that can use the word in Olympics the word Olympics in their title. Because Avery Brundage saw the light. He, he, yes. When the mayor mentioned these these code violations in his hotel. And that's right. Everything is home, right? And money. <laughs> and in fact, that became, wasn't it like the host hotel for it the Special Olympics? It was the host hotel. It, yes. It was like, it, well, and there was another fun story too. The... Um, we were trying to secure a lot of in-house uh, contributions by other uh, charities and and all. And the uh, man who had all the concessions for the Chicago Park District, all the hot dogs at the beaches and pools and places that they had events, mm-hmm. um, Bill Burns, his name was Consolidated Concessions. And we had asked if he could provide box lunches for 1,500 people for our first games, and I didn't hear from him. And I asked um, President McFetridge again. I said, we're not going to have any lunches for all the kids and all the volunteers and everything. And he absolutely must have delivered because they were delivered uh, (laughs) the box lunches. He must have called Mr. Burns and said, you know, you want that contract next year, Mr. Burns, for the parks? Deliver those lunches. Yeah, that's the... That's the upside of the Chicago way. There are other probably downsides of it. You, Perhaps. You being a jurist are probably aware. Of aware. Mm-hmm. <laughs> little pressure there. So you, um, uh, around that time, uh, some, some, tell me exactly when you and how you uh, ended up uh, meeting Ed Burke. Well, I actually met Ed um around 1965 when I started working with the children and his dad of course was an alderman but it was a woman who worked for the Chicago Park District as the head of the matrons on the south side and so she would go around to all the parks all the time and I became very friendly with her because I was working at all the parks different parks over the years and her name was Loretta Black and she said one time to me in uh, just before 19 Christmas 1965, um, she had a, a young man that she thought that I should meet. And, of course, I didn't want any part of any dating fix-ups. I was dating a fellow that I, I knew, and I kind of liked that, and he was a football player for St. Rita High School, but out at Villanova. But I was invited to her birthday party, and lo and behold, I met Ed, and that was the beginning of our relationship. And I, I want to ask you about that and how you how your career uh, progressed. Uh, I, I realized I, I skipped a step here, which is your relationship with the Shriver family, because they took your idea essentially and ran with it. And, and Eunice herself had had in her own backyard, we had 
Tim Shriver here. She had her own version, small-scale version of what you were trying to accomplish, yes. and they take pride, he mentioned, in the fact that they funded your program in the in the first place and give you credit for uh, what, what you did. But it was a source of tension for a long time because um, it became a Shriver endeavor, uh, and uh, there were some hurt feelings about that. There, there were, but it wasn't um, because they took the idea. Um, it was because they never recognized Chicago as being the, the, the beginning of the games. Mayor Daley and the, the citizens of Chicago and everyone in the Park District um, felt that uh, Chicago should have been part of the what she did in other places, you know, if, and clearly she announced at the end of the 68 games that she was going to take this model nationally and started a an, an executive board to do that of Special Olympics, which is what it should have happened. And it was wonderful that she did. And nobody ever seems to, to think that that was a, a, the wrong thing. But I think most people felt that and Mayor Daley uh, would have liked to have Dan Shannon, who was vice president of the Park District, on that committee. Mm -hmm. And there was never um, that. And so for a period of time, I think people were hurt by it. But it didn't stop us. We went to Akron, Ohio, uh, because Eunice set together in 1969, the year after the games, regional games around the country. So we went. And in 1970, Chicago hosted the second International Special mm -hmm. Olympics. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't a grudge that people are upset about. It was just the hurt feelings. So you're absolutely right. But uh, in terms of of Mrs. Shriver and the Kennedys, I have. She was my mentor, even from afar. For what she told me, you guys came from such different places. different worlds. But watching her and the way she got things done was is was the blueprint for me because I was convinced that I had to stay working for people that are vulnerable in our society, and um, her words to me unacceptable. It was a revelation recently in Hyannisport two weeks ago that that's what has caused me to be who I am today. Those words reminded me um, that we were all trying to remember, we were asked to remember sitting on the lawn in Hyannisport what our relationship was, was with Mrs. Shriver. July 10th we were there, and that was her birthday. And we were all trying to sit there. Well, there weren't that many of us, maybe 40 people, uh, to think about what the relationship was with her. And I thought about my first meeting her. And when she told me that, it was it was a blow, but then I realized, my gosh, that's what I've been doing all my whole life. There's nothing that's been uh, not touched by that word unacceptable. It was unacceptable that the games were so small. We have to keep on improving. It's unacceptable that I didn't have my college degree. I always felt that I needed to be, if I wanted to be respected in the field, I had to go back to college. So my husband insisted I go back to college. Mm -hmm. I started college, I had three kids at the time, but I went back because it was unacceptable. And then he said, you'd be a better advocate for more people um, in, who are vulnerable in our society 
they would listen to you more because of your knowledge, but if you had a law degree, you'd be a better advocate. So I went back to law school because it was unacceptable not to be better. Not to be better, everything can be improved. So what she said to me has been, I think, the in my mind, the unacceptability of whatever I do is not good enough. Um, do the best you can. I mean, don't not do it, but always try to be better or have somebody help you to be better. I've never been shy about asking for help, and I've always gotten help my whole life. Mm -hmm. So everything can be better. You must have gotten some help uh, to, to forge your way through college, through law school, given the challenges that you had. Yes. Going back to college, it was really kind of, I really didn't want to, but I knew I had to. Uh, but I had some tutors, and DePaul University had a program for more mature um, learners to go back to school, the School for New Learning. It's a non-traditional learning. And actually, we had mentors and helping us. So it wasn't it was non-traditional. And so even in, in law school, I had a tutor. I was able to get through law school uh, with a tutor because I had help. As I said, uh, I've had help my whole life, and I'm not afraid, but I wanted to be better at what I, mm -hmm. I did. But I always say to young people today is that don't, don't worry about it. Ask somebody for help. You're going to do better if you do. And you took that, you did take your law degree and you did become an advocate for, for, for vulnerable children. I did. You, um, including working for a legal aid society at one point. I, I've all, well, I, I actually didn't work for legal aid. I had a, a neighborhood law office and I did most of my work pro bono. So it like had my own legal aid society, but, um, <laughs> I focused a lot on children and criminal law, uh, in defendants, young people in the criminal justice system. I became Governor Edgar's special counsel on child welfare, which is actually in our democratic world a mortal sin to go to the other side to work for a Republican governor. But he, then I have to give him credit. I mean, he recognized someone who, who in the in the in the picture in Cook County, especially where a lot of child welfare and welfare issues are contained between the lake and the west side and the north side and going all the way out to Markham now in Chicago. It's a it's a geographic area where our state's two-third child welfare issues are. And in asking me to be a special counsel on child welfare, which I just relished. I love doing that. So I left my law practice to do that for a couple of years. Um, and, and we'll get to your, um, to your service on the bench. Um, I want to ask you, you know, you, you talk about where most of the problems were, and it, 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 it hints at the issue of race, which is something that I mean, you grew up on the southwest side of Chicago at a very um, tumultuous time in the history of Chicago. You lived there when Dr. King marched, uh, marched there. Market Park, that's my park. Yeah, yeah. What are your re uh, memories of that? The year that Dr. King... Um, marched, the only thing my mom and dad said, they didn't want me to go to the park that day. I lived in a, kind of like my own little bubble. I was a park kid. I, I, re I didn't read the newspaper. It was Like I said, reading was hard for me. Uh, I just didn't really pay attention to what was going on. The only time I really I had um, consciousness of being with 
uh, African-American community was at George Williams because that was the old YMCA college. So people who wanted to be social workers and physical education teachers gravitated to George Williams College. So some of my best friends were African-Americans. I hadn't even met an African-American in my growing up on the Chicago South Side. My dad was a bartender and worked with people, but he, he never said anything, and I never knew anything. I was, I was probably a blank slate to, as to that, mm-hmm. um, which was a good thing. And, you know, but whereas other people that I know didn't grow up in that situation, there were some very racist feelings in, in their families. Not in mine, uh, but so I really feel good about that. I was open uh, as a child. So... Um, your husband succeeded his father as alderman 50 years ago. Yes. He's the dean of the city council. But he went through his own tumultuous time here in Chicago uh, after the election of the first African-American mayor. He was the he was one of the leaders of that sort of anti-Washington block, almost entirely white, yes. in the city council. It was a very frayed time. How, how did you process that at that time? Well, well, I didn't understand exactly the politics of it all because Ed, you know, Ed was just my husband was twenty four when he got elected. His dad died May eleventh. We got married May twenty fifth, and the Special Olympics was July twentieth. So I really was focused on other things. It was very stressful for him. Um, that's how he was raised. Um, but he he's changed. I mean, and we all have changed over time. And during that time, it was very difficult um, for him. I mean, I just saw the stress. I don't know the politics of it all, but I do know one thing that I remember him saying to me. This is really government because the two sides sat in the back rooms because both constituencies didn't want their population to know that they actually talked together, and they got a lot of legislation ironed out together. But on, when they came out, they were always fighting. So I, I will tell you, you know, I worked for, uh, I covered the 1983 mayoral race when Harold Washington won. I later worked for him in his reelection. I had long conversations with him. Um, I remember. There were two guys, Ed Verdoliak and Ed Burke, who were the leaders of the... I said to I said, Mayor, why are you always attacking Verdoliak, but you never attack Burke? And it's interesting, because I hear what you're saying, and he said, you know, because I kind of think this is the way Burke was raised. He And, you know, I kind of understand that. He said, I think Verdoliak knows better, and he's just an opportunist. And he said, that really offends me. But it was interesting. And and the thing that is most interesting to me is you guys, you've had several uh, adopted children, foster children, um, and you raised a, a, a child who was the son of a, a crack addict. And this was a celebrated case in uh, Chicago, very painful, I'm sure, for all of you, because you fought for custody of this child. Uh, who I got to see the other day, who's a splendid young man. Um, Why did you uh, adopt him, and um, what moved you to fight that fight? Two things, David. Um, As a Edgar's special counsel, Governor Edgar's special counsel on child welfare, I was observing the foster parent system licensing process. So 
I, I, I would come home at night and I'd tell Ed about, well, this particular baby um, just had heart surgery. They need a short-term emergency care family to take the child. And Ed says, well, we, we don't have anybody at home anymore. We can take the child. And I said, I don't think so. We haven't got our license. That'd be really good. Baby dies, Burke's baby, you know, no license. But that was the impetus for us to go through the licensing process. He would, he wanted to take babies. We could, and I just wanted to see how bad the licensing process was. But 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 time we finished. It took nine months for us to get our license. I was on the appellate court, and we started getting calls to take uh, short-term emergency care, special needs babies, zero to two. So we had a few babies that came to us for short term, and um, after. The, the last baby came, not the last, but the second of the last baby came to us, and we had to give him up. Ed said, we cannot do that. We just can't do this anymore. It's just too heartbreaking. I was home for two days in bed, with, and I still think about this baby, Jeremy, who's now got to be 23, uh, every single day, you know, what's happened to him. But so we, we went back to our work, decided not to do this anymore, and I got a call from Department of Children and Family Services. We see that you have an open bed. We have a, um, a fetal alcohol cocaine baby, eight days old, African-American. Do you have room? Well, I put them on hold, and I called Ed, and he said, absolutely not. <laughs> and me being on the appellate court then, I made a judicial decision, and I said, <laughs> what time is the baby coming? So that night, Travis was delivered. And um, so Travis came to our home eight days, going through fetal alcohol, cocaine withdrawal, and we didn't intend to keep him. Um, we were short-term emergency care parents, but because of the system and, and process, he was all of a sudden three years old because the biological mother hadn't done what she needed to do to get him back. He had two older siblings. And so by then, um, there was a uh, bonding, uh, psychological bonding session, and the doctors at the University of Chicago said that we have to, he, he needs to stay with us. He, he was needy. He was autistic, all kinds of things. So we started to uh, go through the process of adopting. And then the case turned into a, a press fiasco. Uh, so actually, the court, I think, didn't uh, do what they should have done. Children need permanency. They did not terminate the, the mother's, the biological mother's rights. And he was with us as we were only his legal guardians until he turned 18. And it was then we could adopt him. But, of course, he knew we always wanted to. We have three other children who are adopted. So he really didn't think too much of it. But it's, he also knew that it wasn't permanent. And that, that's the troublesome part of it. But we love him more than anything in the whole world, just like we love all our children. And and the color meant nothing. Of course, raising, you know, a what, did child. It change, did it change you guys? It I mean, did. To have that experience, to see the world through his eyes and his experience? It, it most certainly did because we consciously had to make sure that we raised this young African-American uh, boy to have uh, uh, African-American friends go to school with more than 51% of African-American schools. He had a lot of special needs. Um, his caseworker became his uh, sponsor for confirmation, very good friend. We still see him, and he's 
is kind of his counselor today. Uh, we've been on two civil rights pilgrimages with John Lewis down to Salem. We crossed the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and when Barack Obama spoke at Brown Chapel, first time, mm-hmm. we were there. And there's a cute story that I'm going to tell you. I don't know if you know about this, but Travis uh, went to school with Taylor Bennett, Chancellor Bennett's oh, yes. yeah. brother, who's two years younger. So when we were at the Brown Chapel. Chance the Rapper, for Chance those who don't the know. Chance the Rapper, yes. yes. So when we were at Brown Chapel, first time uh, President Obama spoke there, he was campaigning, he mm-hmm. came out and he saw Ed and I and he met Travis, and Travis spoke right up. Can I ask you a question, he said. And President Senator Obama said, well, absolutely, Travis, what is it? Taylor Bennett told me that he was in your house, was he? <laughs> It was really, it was hysterical because, and of course it took Senator Obama back a little bit and he said, well, if Taylor Bennett said so, then he was being very diplomatic about it because Ken Bennett, uh, yeah, who worked for, who worked Obama, for yeah. was probably there. Well, that really made Travis depressed because he didn't want because they were always fighting. They were best buddies, Taylor <laughs> and Travis, and they were always fighting. Who knew? So you who thought he who? was, uh, yeah. So yeah. Travis said, oh, Darn it, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was 10 years old or something. I wrote in my book, in my memoir, uh, about this period in our history uh, with uh, your husband and all of the turmoil. Yes. And I said I, I, I'd really be interested to know what Harold Washington would think about the fact that you took took Travis in and... and, 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 and uh, he became part of your family and so on. Um, I mean, I'm moved to think about it. I, I think, because I, I really admired Harold, too, and uh, I, I think that he would be very happy. I think he would have been a mentor to, for Travis. I think he would have put an arm around him. He would have wanted to, to and, and Ed as well. Because you know why? Because there's hope. Because you, he he knew Ed at his time that was tumultuous. If he were alive today, then he knows and he could know that people can learn if they listen and if they grow. And absolutely, I believe that that's hope. Is that then there is hope in society for the future? If if people like us who came from certain kinds of lifestyles and families, just working class people, but were raised a certain way, that doesn't mean down the line we can't raise our children differently and should. And I think that's that's the lesson, is that we did learn. Um, you've also, you, you, you went to the appellate court, ultimately the Supreme Court, I should say in the interest of full disclosure, I helped you along yes. the way on one of those campaigns. campaigns. Uh, but... Um, uh, and I helped you, by the way, for many reasons, but not the least of which is I think it's important to have people on the bench who understand uh, people who, who have vulnerabilities, who often get lost in the legal system. I wanna, we'll, we'll talk about that at the, uh, at the end. But you've also been involved with the church in dealing with this uh, issue of, uh, uh, of the abuse of children. Um, and you were on the uh, the uh, National Review Board uh, for the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops for a couple of years 
in the early 2000s. Uh, tell me about that experience and why you left. Well, that was quite an experience. The only thing I knew about sex abuse um, was a case that I had um, many years ago um, about um, a, a person who was charged with criminal sexual abuse of students uh, in the Chicago public schools. So that's really all I knew. Uh, but a friend of mine, Father Clee Kiley, was working for the Bishop's Conference when the Boston Globe broke the story uh, January 2nd, 2002, not that I forget. Yes. But um, he, the bishops this, were like deer in headlights. This was the famous Spotlight Spotlight, case. and I saw the movie. It is totally accurate. Uh, I was amazed uh, that there was no exaggeration. I know the names that they brought out. I know those people. The sex abuse crisis, um, the bishops asked people who, and the cardinals around the country, for someone to be on the committee. And uh, there ended up being 12 of us. Frank Keating, who was the governor of Oklahoma, mm -hmm. was the first chair. I was the interim chair. Uh, Bob Bennett, um, Clinton's lawyer, uh, many good, good people. Leon Panetta was on mm -hmm. the committee as well. And we worked together to put together a charter for the protection of children. A former agent in charge here in Chicago, Kathleen McChesney from the FBI, she ended up being the third most high, the highest ranking, third highest ranking person in the FBI. She was just about to retire, so we hired her. She put together the investigators, 50 of them, to go into all the dioceses and eparchies in the United States and find out how many victims, how many offenders, and we, our board, interviewed over 100 people, victims, offenders, clerics, psychiatrists, uh, professors, people have written about it, to see what the problem was. And um, well, presumably how pervasive it was. Oh, it was endemic across, actually across the world, as we know now, mm. uh, and hidden. And it's like anything else. Bureaucracies, the Catholic Church is a 2,000-year-old bureaucracy, and the it's the top-down ruling. Uh, we finished our report, but the part that we didn't have done was what did Rome know and when did Rome know it? So... Uh, I faxed letters to the Roman Curia, to the committees who um, might be uh, willing to meet with us, and asked if we could come to Rome to interview them. And we, out of the 10 letters I sent, seven came back. Uh, and Bob Bennett and Bill Burley and I, Bill Burley was head of Scripps Howard, uh, a publishing company, went out to Rome and met with several of the cardinals. And it was interesting because, for instance, Cardinal... Francis Arinze from Nigeria said, what's going on over there? That told us a lot. That question meant down, from the Pope down, no one else knew what was going on. It was pretty much hidden. So even the cardinals in the world didn't know what was happening, just like a lot of bureaucracies. So one, one cardinal said we could come and visit him, but then he closed the door on us. Then when I got back... Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger had faxed back and said, would you come back and I'll, I'll meet with you. So then Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope, we spent two and a half hours with discussing the matters of the church. Um, it's hard to get rid of you know systems that are in place and bureaucracies, but there's still a lot more to come and it's worldwide. 
Scott Turow, a friend of yours and a yes. friend of mine, mm-hmm. um, wrote me. Great in author, the, and, great author and attorney. And attorney mm-hmm. and good friend. And he wrote and told me, he said, these kinds of crimes know no borders. And that was in the very beginning. And he's absolutely on, on the money with that. They knew no borders. We began to, to realize that um, the investigation has been all over the world now. Right, but it, it hasn't really bottomed out in the you know the, the pontifical commission uh, for the protection of minors uh, just marie collins uh, resigned uh, in 2017 she was the only victim on this uh, on this panel um, what does that tell you about the progress or lack thereof that has been made well what you probably don't realize um, but our board um, was actually picked by us. Uh, the bishops picked Frank Keating and me and Michael Bland and Bob Bennett. So the four of us met in Oklahoma, and we chose the skill sets of, peop- of what we needed on the board. And then we asked, um, got, had people fill those skill sets. So what happened is that we had a very independent board, people who were not going to, you know, you know, let their reputation um, fly by the wayside and say, you know, yes, your eminence will do this. So we became almost ostracized by the bishops and and cardinals from after the first month. Mm-hmm. So we really did our work as an independent contractor. So after we were, our time was up, we never, we'd set our own terms, and we were going to gradually leave um, so there would be institutional memory. But what happened when um, people started to leave, the bishops did not appoint people like us. And so the whole commission is a different kind of a body and reports to the bishops. We didn't report to the bishops at all. I mean, is there the will? Is there the will to deal with this problem? Um, In one sense, there is, but I think they really don't like to give up control. I mean, they'd like for it to go away, but it will never go away unless they permit the lay people of the Catholic Church to, to be the administration of mm-hmm. this situation. And we're not there. We're not there. They they changed the whole board who would have been there uh, doing it. Even the the Rome board, you don't hear anything about. And that's Collins um, mm-hmm. retiring. Uh, are you fearful uh, that uh, that that you the problem is still out there, that young people are still at risk? No, because what we put in place in the Catholic Church which is ripple effect into other institutions, Boy Scouts and other schools situation, although I'm not so sure about the Chicago Board of Education, uh, a, a background checks that are required, um, employment um, records being looked at in the Catholic Church. It's a lot careful, more careful than they were before, so I don't think so. And what's interesting is that the children today, because parents realize uh, what needs to be done? My my mom and dad never mentioned, you know, just don't talk to strangers. That's all I ever heard. But when I first got on this board, and Travis is a good example, is we were in a restaurant. And he was just a little guy, and he had just started, um, you know, going to the washroom by himself. And we were in a restaurant in Greektown here in Chicago, 
And I didn't want him to go into the washroom by himself. So I was going to take him into the ladies' room. And he said no. And I said, well, listen. So I said, Travis, don't talk to anybody. Don't let anybody touch you. Don't let anybody look at you. Nothing. Okay, so I let him go in. And it was like seven minutes, eight minutes, ten minutes. And I'm standing at the men's room waiting for him to come out. And he came out. And for the whole restaurant to hear, Mom, no one touched me. <laughs> but that's the lesson we learn yeah. is that parents now have to be cognizant of this. Mm -hmm. And when a kid comes home and says, you know, somebody touched me or was too familiar with me, listen to them. Because in the old days, not only did the parents think, don't talk about father like that or don't talk about that because it's not true, and they shoved the child aside, uh, that they didn't listen to them, that it just permitted and law enforcement too they just said they if they saw fa you know the father somewhere or somebody was said anything about father if there was too much drinking they just took him back to the rectory nowadays that cannot happen and should not happen in 2014 you became the first Illinois Supreme Court justice to uh, to officiate at a, at a same-sex uh, wedding um, what tell me what moved you to to, to do that? Was there any blow blowback from it um, from the, the church or elsewhere? No, it's no blowback at all. But some of my best friends um, were same-sex partners and had been together for years. The gentleman that does my hair, twenty-five-year partner, my dear friends, and it going through campaigning actually. Uh, introduced me to that community, not only for myself, but I would tag along with Ed and became good friends. Uh, you can remember John Henry Damsky over mm -hmm. the years, and, and we became dear friends. And it just, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they were excluded. It was unequal treatment. It was so wrong. A vulnerable population in our society became what I cared about. And uh, as far as uh, marriage and civil unions, I was... I'm always there available. And in fact, I'm always counseling these couples to, to get married because they won't be there um, when there is a catastrophic injury mm -hmm. or end of life and they should be married. And, and so I've been fortunate enough uh, to Tongue, uh, And just thinking about the long sweep of your history in, uh, with uh, uh, children with vulnerabilities, with learning differences and so on, um, where are we today uh, versus then? But really, where are we? Where do we need to go? Um, because there are still enormous problems and and um, well, inequities. It's, and that's absolutely right. Lack it's, of resources. It's totally unacceptable. Just like what Mrs. Shriver said. It's just the unacceptability of of life. Um, we've gotten this far uh, in society uh, about education, especially with. Uh, children and adults with special differences. Um, we're getting further with people who are of LGBTQ um, uh, and other it's vulnerable people in our society. But it's, it's for short term. It's not a plan. And I don't see anybody in charge of our society, especially in the United States. I don't see anyone who's really taking charge and saying we've got to take care of this population. Education, long-term residential care, good health care, um, end-of-life issues, pension funds for Special Olympians. But 
a lot of our uh, people who are vulnerable in our society don't have family. They don't have anyone to take care of them. So society has to step in. And we need to do this. I mean, they end up in the criminal justice system, getting mental health care, because that's the only place that they can go. Uh, Ann Burke, uh, as the proud father of an, a Special Olympic champion, I want to thank you for all the things that you've done uh, for people who needed an advocate uh, throughout your life. Thank you, David. I'm honored. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.